When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. You are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve Jay. David Cantwell has written about country music for The New Yorker, Salon, No Depression, and many other publications. He's also the author of Merle Haggard, The Running Kind, which we're going to talk about, but our on-air warm-up was dominated by Ken Burns' country music series, as well as Tanya Tucker, Johnny Cash, and an acclaimed book that he co-authored, Heartaches by the Number, Country Music's 500 Greatest Singles, so we're going to do that, and welcome, David. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You penned a pre-review on the current Ken Burns country music documentary, where you say he got the big things mostly right. Can you explain? The big thing of big things that I, I most appreciated about the documentary was that he did want it all. Country music, particularly critical attitudes in the 21st century, have tended to become more generous to the music, more appreciative. But I think there's still a longstanding sort of animosity on one end and maybe just a condescension on the other. I'm a teacher as well. I teach English. I frequently ask my students, what kind of music do you listen to? And their initial response is, oh, I listen to all kinds of music. Pause. Except country. Pitchfork and other sites will still routinely put together lists of the best albums from a particular year or the best albums from an entire decade and somehow whiff on country music. There's a, a looking down the nose at country, not taking it seriously, that I think that this Burns documentary does a little bit to push back on. My basic takeaway from it on those terms is that I'm all for it. I thought it was fantastic. I think whether you're a longtime country music fan or if uh, you're just country curious, you'll be delighted by it and enjoy it a great deal. It has all kinds of nits that can be picked about it. I spent most of the 16 hours talking back to the television, but I give it a thumbs up. It's fantastic. Well, one of the things I really liked in your pre-review is the line, country music is pop music. And you address that notion that while you know many cite the traditional label, its most persevering features actually change. There are two things there, right? So there's the, there's the pop music part. Country music has almost always been crossing over in some way or another, no matter what point you look to in its history. People, I think, maybe forget or just never knew that we think of the, uh, the first family of country music is the Carter family and the father of country music, or the man who became known later as the father of country music is Jimmy Rogers. The records that both of those artists put out over the rest of their careers were very often not just country hits. They were national 
pop hits that were successful all across the country. And that's continued straight on. One of the biggest country stars in the 1930s was Gene Autry, who just also happened to be one of the biggest stars, period, in America. And you can follow that all the way up to any particular moment you want. The Nashville Sound era when Patsy Cline and Jim Reeves are having pop hits to uh, the country politan era when Tammy and Loretta and Conway and Charlie Rich and on and on are also having pop hits. The outlaw period, which I think a lot of people think of as, no, that's traditional. That's a back-to-basics move is one of the greatest pop periods in country music history when Waylon and Willie become national phenomenons and there are movies based on it. Urban Cowboys, a pop moment, and on and on. It's pop music. The other part of that question, though, was that you're asking about tradition. So my real quick on that is I think that we talk about that wrong. They'll call some new recording a traditional-sounding record, meaning they think the new thing sounds like the old stuff. Right. The way that the tradition has worked in country music is not that the new stuff sounds like the old stuff. That doesn't happen very often, and when it does, the better term is retro, not traditional. And uh, that stuff tends not to be popular. What happens instead is that the new stuff, while sounding new, also clearly connects to the stuff that came before. There are all kinds of ways that country artists have worked to change the sound while also keeping it connected. Change plus connection is the country tradition. And the one thing that the Burns doc does really well is, like, for example, it takes one record, one song, I should say, again and again in the documentary. Uh, Jimmy Rogers has a very famous song called Mule Skinner Blues, very popular. Then in 1939, Bill Monroe performs it as the song he chooses to do when he's doing his audition to get on the Grand Ole Opry in 1939, proto-bluegrass version of it. Later on, Rose Maddox, or the Maddox Brothers and Rose, do a version of Neil Skinner Blues that's proto-rockabilly. And then in 1970 or 71, approximately, Dolly Parton does a version of Mule Skinner Blues. She calls it Lady Mule Skinner. It has a very country soul kind of driving rhythm and lots of amplified pedal steel guitar, and it sounds like 1971. Those are different sounds, but they're traditional because they're clearly connected to what's come before. Right. And pop music also is just kind of a shortened term for popular music. You know, all of these things are of that particular moment. And as time moves on, even today, you can see some of those covers that are hitting the pop charts as country songs. The idea that pop is short for popular is definitely true. And that's one way to measure it. Another way would be to say that pop music is any music that's attempting to be popular, whether it winds up actually being popular or not, or uh, using the, the conventions that are associated with music that's already been popular. And then that's without even getting into like uh, Robert Criscow's famous notion of the semi-popular stuff that has a strong cult audience, but isn't never really pop in the sense that of, of superstars and topping the charts and those kinds of things, but still have critically acclaimed and successful careers. So basically you're telling me that the record buying public is a fickle animal. <laughs> yeah, well, sure it is. And um, aren't we? Of course. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I think that Burns did a really nice job explaining, I'm not sure if it's just underreported or unappreciated, but country music's debt to African-American musicians. And they had a, just a huge contribution. Uh, this is one of the strengths of the documentary. And also one of the nits that I and many others have picked with the documentary. So on the one hand, it does a fantastic job of establishing from the get-go in the initial episode that's called The Rub. The Rub is the way that white culture and black culture have a tension between them, have contact between them, and create American culture. Establishing that as a foundation for country from the beginning episode and then doing a good job of you know identifying 
characters like Arnold Schultz or Rufus T. Top Payne, who were mentors to Bill Monroe and Hank Williams, respectively, and reminding us of that, you know, throughout the process of the documentary. I was really happy to see that. On the other hand, a word that was odd to me that never showed up in the documentary was racism. It was like, why aren't Arnold Schultz and Rufus T. Tott Payne better known today? And did they, while Bill Monroe and Hank Williams had lucrative careers, they accrued both cultural capital and real capital. Schultz and Payne, what happened to them? Did they get rich? Did they have longstanding careers? And so when we talk about race and country music, on the one hand, we definitely want to acknowledge that there has been this cross-cultural exchange always, and that's a vital part of how the tradition has extended. But we also want to pay attention to, you know, who's getting paid. Payne and Schultz didn't get paid. And so that's one of the things that I think is a real weakness with the documentary. So the realness factor combines a lot of things, and I think that you mentioned that in your article. What else did he get wrong? On that same point, uh, in addition to racism not being explicitly called out, I don't think sexism was explicitly called out. So again, I think that the documentary does a pretty good job, actually, of identifying women artists, but it doesn't identify enough women artists. <laughs> uh, one of the things it does really well is it elevates Rose Maddox of the Maddox Brothers and Rose, the uh, 1940s uh, California hillbilly boogie band that insiders in the music, I think, have always sort of understood that not only were they like the direct antecedents of what later became known as the Bakersfield Sound, but they also are among, you know, they're, they're proto-rockabilly, they're prefiguring the more rocking sounds that are coming to come to pop music and then eventually to country music in the 50s. She's just an amazing character, and it, it elevated her to the first rank. I hope that this exposure, this new exposure for Maddox, gets her in the Country Music Hall of Fame. But on the other hand, there's a lot of other women that could have been brought up or spent more time with. And if you're not going to do that, then I would like them to have spent some time on, well, why was that exactly? Why were women relegated to the role of girl singers and etc.? As for the realness factor, though, Another mistake that I regret Burns made was that he didn't have he didn't have any scholars or academics or critics. That probably sounds self-interested. <laughs> <laughs> he relied mostly on musicians, almost entirely on musicians, with the exception of venerable Bill C. Malone, who wrote Country Music USA. That's the only historian talking head in the piece. And they very frequently fall back on this idea that this country artist or that country recording is great because it's so real. It's just real and down-to-earth, and that particular trope is almost always a category error. It's one country relies on a lot, but it's in any art form. If we're trying to talk about real when we're talking about art, we're usually making a category error. Art is artificial. Art deals in artifice. So I wish there had been somebody on the documentary that more consistently pushed back on the idea that country artists are creating personas, you know, making artistic choices when they write songs and put together arrangements. Just like rock and roll performers, just like pop performers, just like R&B stars. Well, it's a lengthy series, and it ends in the 90s when arguably country is at another peak and starting to cross over. You know, I'm sure it's difficult to decide where to end and what to leave out. You know, you don't even get to alt country, and, and maybe that's another series entirely, but, you know, that was somewhat of a pushback in terms of some of the realness or traditional things that you talk about, wasn't it? Well, I think that was definitely how it was grounded. You're talking about alternative country uh, in, yes. in the 90s and how it was pushing back against a, a more pop, big production, what was on country radio during that era. 
Hat Country, right? Yeah, the hat acts like Garth and Clint Black and Alan Jackson, etc. But also, by the time you get to about 96, 97, you also have Shania coming up as well. So I definitely think that alternative country moment that happens in the, the 90s, I wrote for No Depression Magazine, which was you know supposedly the Bible of alternative country music in those years. I'm well aware with this kind of battle between the supposedly real alt country and the fake hot new country stuff. I reject it <laughs> pretty much entirely. I think it's a false dichotomy. I think too often in those circles, the idea of less is more, that particular aesthetic gets confused with less is more real. Right. And uh, again, I, I just think that's wrong. It does foregrounds uh, Johnny Cash's comeback with the American recordings, which was one of the probably the more famous and commercially successful albums that would be broadly lumped into that sort of alternative country moment of the early to mid 90s. Well, I think certainly those records introduced him to a new audience. Yeah. Kind of like that. You mentioned earlier about getting paid. Rolling Stone published a piece earlier this week touting, quote, the current Ken Burns effect, citing a surge in the sales of country records and songs following the documentary. The day after the finale, 14 of the 20 top selling country albums on iTunes were from artists who had been prominently featured. That's pretty remarkable. That is pretty remarkable. That'll be a momentary blip. But it, so it'll be interesting to see if it has any actual long-term effect. How many of these people who went out and bought a Merle Haggard Greatest Hits collection because they saw him on the Ken Burns documentary will then go, oh, I like those. I think I'll maybe buy a, another Best of collection from a different period of his career or maybe buy one of his solo albums. I'll be interested to see if it translates that way. also be interested to see if, if it will spur any sort of re- artistic reaction among country acts who are inspired by uh, the Burns doc to go back and incorporate older sounds into their modern sounds themselves. Well, some breaking news for you. Um, sadly, a, a week after the finale, the number of iTunes best-selling country albums by the artist in, highlighted in the doc dropped by 50%. So uh, you were right on point there. Yeah, well, sure. Short attention span, I think. Now that they've downloaded or bought the disc or got the stream there in their uh, Spotify suggestions, then maybe people will continue to explore and learn. And so I think that's all to the good. Definitely. A couple of weeks back, you also wrote an essay for The New Yorker, which you've done a lot of writing for, on Tanya Tucker. And you called her new album, which is is pretty recent, the best of an underrated career. What is it about this album that struck you? I think it was, I said it was arguably the best of a career. It's a remarkable record. Have you heard it? I have not, no. You should check it out. I think it's absolutely amazing. She's amazing. I think because it's a late in life because Tanya began her recording career so young, you know, she was 13 when she, when Delta Dawn became her first hit back in, was it 73? You know, she's still a pretty young woman. But to have this late in life career moment where she's getting some attention and, and perhaps getting attention beyond the country audience because of her association with her producer, Brandy Carlisle, and the co-producer, Shooter Jennings, Whalen's Kid, who has his own alt-country connections, or now, now we call that Americana, I guess. There's going to be some comparison between this new Tanya album and uh, Johnny Cash's American recordings. I understand that comparison. You know, a legend away from the spotlight for a while now returns with this new predominantly acoustic, stripped down, has some rock associations and is getting the attention of, of kids, hopefully, in a way that they hadn't in the past. It's a legitimate comparison in those terms. But I also think that with Carlisle and Jennings has achieved is something that I appreciate even more than the Cash recordings. I think that Rick Rubin, the producer of the Johnny Cash American recordings 
kind of what he did was to take this huge, larger-than-life persona, Johnny Cash, and kind of shrunk it down to its rebellious, rock-appreciating nugget. I think what Carlisle has done with Tanya Tucker is actually to make her more fully rounded, to expand what we've thought Tanya was about all this time. It's just such a, such a wise and heartfelt and still hasn't lost its rebellious edge, but there's a tenderness there that just puts a lump in my throat when I listen to those records. Well, I'll have to listen to that as soon as uh, we're done here. It's interesting that she does seem to resonate with a younger set of artists. You mentioned Brandy Carlisle and Shooter Jennings, but there's also, you know, the Dixie Chicks and Miranda Lambert, Gretchen Wilson. They're all fans. I'm wondering, from what I remember from her, is a much more pop-oriented singer. You know, TNT, that record, and Red Leather, and right. People Magazine, and she was on Love Boat and Fantasy Island. You know, again, we come back to the authenticity question. Did that hurt her in the industry or the audience, or did it just kind of confuse who she was and what she was? Well, yes and no. In that particular moment, I think there was a, a time when she wasn't doing as well on country radio, and then especially in the, the early 80s are kind of a, a dead period for her. The first half of the 1980s are a dead period for her in terms of country hits after a 70s that was incredibly strong. And that was in part because she was sort of chasing a poppier sound, but I don't think that the actual chase was the issue. I think it was while she was doing that, she was also occasionally sort of bad mad the limitations of country music in Nashville, and this turned a lot of, of Nashville insiders off to her. Going pop has never really been a problem, as long as you take your audience with you. One of the things that I talk about in that piece about Tucker is that I think it would surprise a lot of people who have a general sense of the country story to learn that in the entire history of the genre, she is the fifth most successful woman on the Billboard Country Singles chart ever. Wow. The four above her, I don't even have to say their last names. You'll know who they are. Reba, Dolly, Loretta, and Tammy. And then I get to Tanya and they just blank stares, right? right? They don't know who she is. I think part of the reason for that is not that she went pop, but that she never did. She had these attempts, but they were mostly unsuccessful. If you think of Reba and Dolly, <laughs> and even Loretta and Tammy, they have at least a moment, if not many moments, where they sort of leave the country genre and are known about, embraced by the wider country audience. Even Tammy Wynette, right? Stand By Your Man is a record that became a cultural flashpoint at various times throughout our political history. It was in movies, and in addition to being a legitimate hit on pop radio, Tanya never had a moment like that. She's never had a crossover hit. Probably isn't gonna. So her, her most successful chart era is from the middle 80s to about this Garth Brooks moment, uh, the Haddock moment in the early 90s that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. He's right there with Garth and Clint and Alan on the charts. They're getting the number ones and she's getting number twos and number threes in those years. But I don't think people know those records very well. Those have not been canonized the way that her early 70s hits like Delta Dawn and Would You Lay With Me in a Field of Stone and Blood Red and Going Down and... Those first two were covered a ton, too. So, I mean, that probably helped her. Yeah. My recognition of, of Tanya Tucker is TNT. I was 16, and my mom was a huge country music fan. And that cover features her in a pose in a you know, really tight leather outfit. And I, yeah. I, I remember, like, that's not my mom's country music. <laughs> and so you played it. Well, I investigated <laughs> it. It didn't, you know, at that point, I was 16, you know, and I was you know, leaning towards punk rock. So Tanya Tucker didn't really fit, but it caught my attention. Let's put it that way. Also knowing, you know, from Delta Dawn, that, that was a big move stylistically. 
The actual record itself, right? It's, so it's kind of a mixture of almost arena rock, but also a lot of rock and roll covers. Her main idol, the, the one she used to write, talk about all the time, was Elvis Presley. That's who she wanted to be like. And she wanted to have that kind of country-based but crossover appeal. I think that's what she was seeking in those years. But she's not alone in that. Like if you think, like Linda Ronstadt, for example, if you think of the albums that she's making right around the same time that TNT comes out, that's what they have. It's like Buddy Holly covers. Right, right. Then also, you know, a more arena-sized balladry. I think that's sort of the sweet spot that she was searching for in those years. I think TNT is a vastly underrated album. I wish that people would go back and give that a reappraisal. Maybe I'll dial that up after a new one. I mean, the, the Brandy Carlisle effect is probably huge with the high woman doing so well. And I'm so impressed with Carlisle. She's, she's a superhero. Huh. <laughs> she is, she's someone who's come along now and she's done something that others have done before, which is they have a moment where they're hot. She was winning Grammys and her song, The Joke, is popular in advertisements and all sorts of forums. It's going to be one of those songs, I think, that people are going to play it graduations or funerals or parties or something. It's one of those songs that are going to stick with people. So lots, you know, people have done that before, but what she's done is said, okay, I've got some capital. I'm going to spend it. And she's spending it on shining the light on other women, mm -hmm. Tucker, but also her compatriots in the high women. She's begun to go out on the road and do dates with uh, less successful women artists that she admires. And she opens for them. Oh, <laughs> knowing that that will fill the house and expose women to a bigger audience than they've had in the past. And so I'm just really impressed by the choices she's making now that she can actually sort of begin to do what she wants. That's like how you tell where someone's heart is or where their convictions are. It's like, okay, now you can do pretty much anything you want. What are you doing? And she's saying, I'm shining a light on other women. I mean, the first I heard of her was the song The Eye, and it might still be my favorite song, but that's miles away from what she's doing musically now. So she's, you know, now that she is popular and she has that capital, she's, you know, saying, I'm going to make whatever records I want to make. Yeah, well, that's what everybody, that's Outlaw, right? That's what the Outlaws were fighting for. Waylon and Willie said, we want to be in charge of the records we make. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
me ask you about a couple of the other folks that you highlighted in your New Yorker pieces. The only one I read, although I saw a list of them doing some of the research, but Charlie Pride, you know, pretty important figure. Yeah, so he was the only popular country music artist between DeFord Bailey, who the documentary does cover, an African-American harmonica player who was on the Grand Ole Opry for years. So between Bailey and Darius Rucker, who is a 21st century star, uh, between those two, Pride was it. He was enormously popular. One of the, just, I mean, we tend to talk about Pride, understandably, in terms of his race. You know, you always want to note that in addition to being a, a black country star, he's just one of the best country singers, period. The documentary does indeed shine a light on him and put him front stage. But it, again, it doesn't explore like, well, why weren't there black artists who assigned in his wake, but none of them took off. It spends no time at all exploring why that would be. Pride has told the story many times, including his autobiography. He tells the story is told again in the Burns documentary. When he first came to Nashville, he was warned, you know, he was going to get a lot of pushback from the white establishment. And he particularly was going to probably get some pushback from Farron Young, who is notoriously outspoken, which is code for a racist. It was expected that when he met Pride, he was liable to let the N-word drop. And Pride, he said, well, let's go meet him. Right now, let's go. So they track down Farron Young, and they get to um, talking, and then they start, you know, doing a little guitar pull, sharing songs with one another. And then finally, at the end of the encounter, or near it, Young says, well, who would have thought I'd be sitting here singing songs with a jig? Pride is offended by that, but goes on with it. The two eventually become friends, and they're supportive of one another. Farron Young defends his right to get his tracks on the radio and these sorts of things, which were greatly appreciated by Pride. But also what it does is it sort of like gives Pride's moment is shared with Farron Young, whose main accomplishment in the Pride story is that he turned out not to be quite as racist as everybody thought he would be. It's a, just a little bit of that old white savior story. The focus is on the white person who saves the black person as opposed to right. the black person's achievements. After Pride had been around a few years and it had several hits and was, you know, doing quite well, he ran into Webb Pierce, who was another great country legend. At an event, Webb Pierce says, you know, Charlie, we're just we're just so glad to have you here singing our music. He means it, of course, to be inviting and welcoming and an endorsement of sorts. Pride's response is, it's my music, too. Pierce says, what? And Pride says, it's my music, too. That would have been a better uh, way to, if we wanted to include a, a personal story of Pride interacting with the white Nashville establishment. I, I like that story better than the Farron Young story. It puts the agency back with Pride and reminds us of what ostensibly is one of the documentary's points all through, which is that country music is not just white people's music. It has been informed by, even enjoyed and performed by, black artists for as long as it's been around. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I just finished it up because I had been watching it kind of on a tape delay, and it is a remarkable series. You know, for all those those little bits, you know, if it shines that light and exposes how broad this music is, then I think it's done its job. Like I began talking about that, you know, there's this attitude of looking down on country music, Burns choosing to do this and spending eight years with it, or maybe nine years doing the interviews and putting it all together. It's a massive project, but now country music is enshrined on that great American institutional Burns Mount Rushmore as something important to the American story right alongside the Civil War and World War II and the Brooklyn Bridge and jazz. And baseball. And baseball, exactly. <laughs> and now country music is right there with it. I love it. As it should be. We're talking to writer David Cantwell. He also wrote a book called Heartaches by the Number, Country Music's 500 Greatest Singles. 
I'm going to assume some of Merle's songs are in there. How about Tanya? Who else is in there? Well, there's 500. (laughs) (laughs) But no, Merle is in there. I think if you count his duet recordings, like he's in there singing with Bonnie Owens. And then if you also include songs that other people did of his, where he's the songwriter, but not necessarily the performing artist, if you include all of those together, there's more Merle Haggard in the book than anybody else. Really? Uh, So yeah, he's fantastic. And Tanya's in there three times, I think, as well. Who else? Any surprises? I need to emphasize that I co-wrote that book with my colleague, Bill Friscus Warren. It came out in 2003 for the Country Music Foundation and Vanderbilt University Press. What we were trying to accomplish with the book, we wanted to do a reset on the way people talked about the country canon. We wanted to focus in discussions coming out of those hot new country versus all country years. A lot of intense debate between less is more people and the people who were for or against country pop or pop country. Bill and I both really felt strongly that why would you want to choose? There's great records on both sides. The tension between them two is exciting. It's part of what the tradition is. So we wanted to write a book that sort of, one, foregrounded the more pop qualities of country music in a way that maybe it hadn't been in the past. We also wanted to include more women and more women more prominently. In the 21st century, we were living in kind of a golden age of country music writing. Most of it's academic, but our book was intended for a popular audience, and I think it came early enough in the century that it's sort of first in line for this more optimist understanding of what the country can and could be. When you're writing a book like that, one of the things that we thought, well, you need to start with a record that sort of lays out the arguments you want to have, the argument you're trying to make. And so the number one pick, I'll spoiler alert here, is Help Me Make It Through the Night, which of course is unassailable in terms of its songwriter, Chris Christopherson. But the version we chose was the hit version, the number one country hit and also a top 20 pop hit by Sammy Smith. She does a ginger switch on the lyrics to make the song, I think, a little less creepy and more actually sensual and kind of existential. How can I actually survive? She does a great job on it. Sammy Smith is one of my favorite, favorite artists. So to begin the record with a pop hit, a crossover country hit by a woman that was singing a song she didn't write, sort of went against the grain of the, well, the best people are the ones who sing their own songs and the records are stripped down and they probably were never hits at all. That was our number one pick because we thought that's a good one to sort of say, okay, here's where we're coming from. So that was entry number one in over 500 records. We tried to tell the history of country music from its origins in 1925 with Fiddlin' John Carson's Little Old Log Cabin in the Lane all the way up to record number 500 was Leanne Womack's I Hope You Dance, which came out in 2000. How did we get from Fiddlin' John to Leanne Womack? What were all the tributaries and paths that it took to get there? Each of the entries is its own essay. Occasionally, we'll team up records and do multiple records at once. So I would guess that out of 500 entries, we do that in about 425 essays. For example, at one point in the book, I do an entry where I talk about Bill Monroe's original version of Blue Moon of Kentucky, but that's teamed with Elvis Presley's version of Blue Moon of Kentucky that was a B-side to his first Sun single. And then also rounding out the trio of that entry is Bill Monroe did his own sped-up rock-influenced version of it in the months after Presley's success. I'm very proud of that book. There are things I might do differently about it today, but I think in terms of some of the shifts in the conversation that have happened around country music in the 21st century, I don't think you can necessarily attribute them to our book, but I think we were first in line with this new way of approaching country music. Well, that sounds like the perfect companion piece for anybody who's invested the time in Ken Burns' documentary. I second that appraisal. 
listeners, go out and get that book. You can find it on our site. David, it would be a fascinating Spotify playlist to put together. Yeah. I would keep that. 500 songs, it's long, so I'd just keep it on shuffle play and be a great oral document. I think Vanderbilt University Press, in acknowledgement of the Burn series, was doing playlists surrounding several of their country music titles, and they did one. It wasn't 500, I think it was more like 40 songs long. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, David. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Everyone should check your books out. The one I read was fantastic. I'm going to check this one out as well. Thank you very much. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.